Let's open our copy of the word this morning to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. It's kind of, I will admit to you, it's a little odd. Feels a little odd, I guess, preaching this text uh, without it actually being Christmas. Uh, This is a text that is normally only read at Christmas, normally only preached at Christmas. In fact, maybe you've heard the joke that says... uh, uh, the guy who hadn't been to church in, in 25 years, and whenever he asked, whenever he was asked why he doesn't go to church, he says, "Because every time I go, the preacher only preaches on either Jesus's birth or Jesus's resurrection." And so, um, so that's normally comes with a text like this, uh, Matthew chapter two, very familiar text, probably one of the most beloved text that is uh, in the scriptures, one of the most well-known for sure. Uh, One of the most mysterious, uh, mysterious in a lot of different ways, and a lot of questions that surround this text that, in all honesty, I'm not going to take the time to answer this morning. Uh, For that, you might want to see Brother Stephan this afternoon and let him take some of those apologetic questions. I'm so glad he's here now. And so... Um, You know, when it's a text that is so familiar like this, I'm going to be honest with you, there's a temptation to do one of two things, either just kind of skip over it because you assume everybody knows everything there is to know about it. And I take absolutely no um, assumption that pretty much everyone in this room probably has heard this text read, preached. Um, You've probably read it yourself, maybe in your family uh, time on Christmas morning. Maybe you have done all of these kinds of things probably over the course of a thousand times in uh, your life. And so maybe you are uh, familiar with it and you're wondering, why can't we just skip over this part? Maybe that's you. The other temptation is uh, to kind of try to embellish it, try to kind of put something new into it, make it kind of more exciting or make it more, uh, you know what they say, brother, that'll preach. And, um, and sometimes we kind of edge toward really a kind of a sentimentalism more than truth. And oftentimes sentimentalism will, will sacrifice truth for the sake of feeling and things like that. We don't, we don't want to do that either. Our goal is never to come up with an original interpretation. It is to preach the true interpretation. And, and, and brothers and sisters, let me, let me just say this. And I hope that in my time here, I've built this confidence. Um, I hope you have this confidence in me that I've earned your trust in this, that I really don't care if something will quote unquote preach. I only care whether it is true. That's all I care about. And sometimes the truth is not as exciting as maybe some other things are, but the truth is also helpful and needful for our souls whereas the exciting sometimes can lead us in the wrong direction. And so Matthew chapter two is the visit of the Magi or the Magi. You might hear me say that a couple of times on accident, so just, uh, so just bear with me there. But we are looking at the visit here in which they come in verse one. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. As I said, I don't think there is a single verse in that story that you are unfamiliar with. And so what I wanna ask you this morning is what lessons we can take from it. And one of the kind of the mindsets I had to, get, I had to try to get into this week as I was uh, preparing the sermon is we need to understand that when Matthew wrote these words, Christmas did not exist, at least not in the way that we think of it now. Uh, he's writing this to Christians who do not have a history, a family legacy of celebrating Christmas for years and years and years. He's coming to it. Uh, he's writing this material and it's coming to his original readers in, in completely fresh ways to teach them something about their daily life and their daily discipleship. It is not here to teach us about Christmas per se, although it certainly fits into that category. But instead, when Matthew wrote this, he's writing this to a people who are looking to this to learn what, can, what do I need to be a disciple of the King of Kings from this text. And that's what we want to look at this morning. That's what we want to ask, is that everyone who would be a Christian, everyone who would be saved, everyone who would be a disciple of the kingdom must come and behold the king. Everyone who would come and be Christian must behold the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And I'm not gonna make much of it, but I want you to notice this interplay here where it says, Herod, the king... Behold, wise men came uh, from the east, from Jerusalem, and they're asking, where is he who was born king? The question is, who is king? Who will be king? And um, one of my favorite tracks, and I've provided many of them for you, is, is, the, uh, is the track, Two Ways to Live. Well, the children's version of that is entitled, Who Will Be King? And that is, in fact, we have several of our young ones in this church that have been led to the Lord by their parents working through that track with them. And that is an excellent question. And that is the question that we're asking here. Who will be king in your life? Who will be king of the Christian? And in order to come behold the king, 
we must adore him. Come, let us adore him. Why do we do that? Well, basically we're gonna look at three movements this morning, look at three different ways that we behold our king. And number one, we see in verses one and two, we adore Christ. We adore Christ because of his divine invitation. Because of his divine invitation. You look back at verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, uh, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and came to worship him. There's a lot of tradition surrounding the, the Magi. Who were they? Uh, a lot of things that are kind of taken as gospel today that, that uh, for instance, there were three of them. Uh, we get that from the three gifts, but the truth is we have no idea how many in number there were. Uh, at some point in history, they were elevated to royal status. This is reflected in one of our favorite hymns, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Uh, they were not kings. We don't know uh, what they were, but we, we definitely know they were not kings. They were magi, which is what we'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, an early church tradition says that each one of them is a descendant of one of the sons of Noah. And so essentially you have entire humanity coming uh, to worship Christ. Well, there's that. And by the way, they were also given names. Balthazar, which is another name I wanted to give my son. Casper and Melchior. In fact, if you can see this painting from Italy, well, it's kind of cut out. Actually, their names are written across the top of that painting if you ever see the original one. Oh, and by the way, if you ever wanna see their skulls, you can go see them in Cologne, Germany. Am I saying that right, Cologne? Yeah, if you ever wanna see their remains or skeletons, uh, supposedly you can go see them at a cathedral in Cologne, Germany. Of course, none of these quote-unquote facts are real. Not a single one. The only facts we know is, that, is what Matthew gives us here. The only facts we know is what Matthew tells us. And what does he tell us about them? Well, number one, he tells us that they were pagan Gentiles. They were pagan Gentiles. Where am I getting that from? Well, first of all, they're from the east. Lots of speculation. Persia, Babylon, Egypt has been thrown in there. Uh, a couple of different places. By the way, all of those had a massive Jewish population, so it's not, none of them are beyond the realm of possibility. I think most scholars today say that, uh, say that they came probably from Persia, and, uh, but that's about as reliable as their names being Balthazar, so we just simply don't know. But what we do know is that they were magi. They were magi, and it's the same word that we get the word magician from. And in the, ancient wor in the ancient world, this represented a popular class of priest and king advisors that practiced divination, they practiced magic, and more to the point here, they practiced astrology. So you can see their interest. By the way, scripture never speaks of them in a positive way, never. Never in the Old Testament are Magi presented in a positive light. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 14, God tells Moses that the re one of the reasons why the Canaanites are being cast out of their land is because they listen to people like this. 
in uh, Exodus chapter 22, verse 18, it says, you do not permit a sorceress to live. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word sorceress is actually magi, same word. Even in the New Testament, Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas come across a guy by the name of Elamas, or Elimas, I'm not saying that correctly, but his surname of all things is son of Jesus, bar Jesus. And he is opposing the gospel and Paul rebukes him saying, and here's what he calls him, you son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. That's what the Jews thought of Magi. That's what the Jews thought of people like this. So why in the world did people like this come to Jerusalem asking to behold and asking to worship the king of the Jews? Why would pagan Gentiles do that? Because they were pursued by grace. Because they were pursued by grace. Why did they come in verse two? They say, we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. We're not told exactly what the star is and anything we say would be speculation. However, what's important is that these Magi traveled so far because they saw it. These guys, and keep in mind, they are, they are astrologers, right? So they're watching the sky and they're trying with all of their might to conjure up messages from the sky. Today, you can read these messages in the funny papers, which is where they belong, but, but they're trying to conjure up all of these messages from the sky to give to whoever it is that they were advising. And then out of the blue, all of a sudden, going about their normal business, all of a sudden, this star appears out of nowhere. And you can imagine that this is not something that they have control over. This is not something that they are conjuring up. All these people who spend their life trying to find messages in the stars and conjuring up messages in the stars and now all of a sudden, here's a real one. And you can imagine how this gets their attention. I'm kind of reminded of Balaam, the prophet for hire in the Old Testament who it makes his living by seeking other gods. Can you imagine how surprised he was when the God of the Jews actually answered him back? Can you imagine how surprising that must have been for him? And I imagine you get kind of the same reaction here that all of a sudden in the going about of their normal business, this great star appears. So much so that they would travel in the upwards of two years to come and find out what it's about. They have to get answers. Something that takes them by surprise, something that knocks them off guard. They have to get answers. By the way, we see this in scripture a lot, don't we? Isn't this how God often gets the attention of his people? To go on about their daily business, going about their daily stuff, and then all of a sudden something happens that knocks them off guard. Something happens that appears that they can't control. Something happens that kind of knocks them off balance. Beloved, God has a sovereign right to interrupt our lives. God has a sovereign right. We make our plans, but the Lord guides our steps. And that's exactly what he does here. He knew by presenting the star to these people that it would cause them to start seeking. 
It would cause them to start looking. It would cause them to start asking questions. It enticed them to seek him out. It enticed them to Jerusalem. And ultimately, it draws them to Jesus. Isn't that how the Lord works in our lives? Don't we see that so often in the scriptures? This divine invitation that he gives us, something that exposes us, something that knocks us off guard. And all of a sudden, we're drawn into a deeper fellowship. We're drawn into a deeper communion. God often brings things into our lives to expose us, to draw us closer to him. Maybe through salvation, maybe through dependence, maybe through repentance, maybe through a deeper faith, but it's an invitation to seek him. For Job, it was four friends. For Jonah, it was a whale. For Paul, it was a blinding light. Something that knocks us off our feet and gets our attention and exposes us And yet, the very thing that knocks us off our feet is the very thing that God uses to cause us to seek out Christ. What is it for you? For me, it was getting into trouble with my friends as a teenager. I tell you, you uh, 14 years old and you're getting picked up at a police station by your mom, I tell you, that gets your attention. At least it should. And so, for me, it was that. What about you? What is it for you? What is it that God has brought into your life right now that, is, that, it, that, he is, that he is exposing something in you, that he is drawing you out? He is pulling your heart to him. Maybe for you, it's a conflict to reveal how prideful you are. Maybe for you, it is a sickness to reveal how weak you are. Maybe for you, it was an accident to reveal how fleeting you are. Maybe for you, it is a fear to reveal how small you are? Have you considered that the very, perhaps the very things that God is using to knock you off your feet are the very things that God would use to draw you closer to him? Beloved, oh, beloved, please do not use the very thing that God would use to draw you to him. Please do not use that to pull away from him. Please do not use that. As Christians, we do that, don't we? Something happens in our life, we end up in the hospital, we get discouraged, and what do we do? We pull away when it could be the very thing that, is, that we would use to pull away from God, God would use to draw us into a deeper fellowship with him. Don't waste those things. Don't waste those opportunities. I love the book by John Piper. He says, don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your retirement. Don't waste this. Don't waste that. It's kind of a thing now because it's popular. Beloved, everything that God brings into your life, he would either use to draw you closer to him or you would use to pull yourself away from him. Beloved, please don't do that. Don't do that. But we do it all the time, don't we? Why do we do that? Why do we ignore Christ in times like this? We ignore Christ because of our depraved intuition. Because of our depraved intuition, we ignore him. Look at verses three through nine. We come across two characters. Come across Herod, and we come across the priest and the scribes. 
Now, I want you to understand that even as saved Christians, uh, there is still an indwelling sin principle inside of us that we must fight all the time. Uh, Paul refers to it as the flesh. He refers to it as the old man. He refers to it in all kinds of different ways. But ultimately, it is the flesh that it is everything within us that causes us to ignore Christ and pursue other things that we think will satisfy us more than Christ can. And we see two examples of this. It'll normally show up in two different ways. Number one, in verse three, we see the irreligious response. The irreligious response. In verse three, we see Herod, the king. Understand, people come up and say, where is the king of the Jews? And now Matthew, in a bit of irony, says, now Herod, the king, wants to know what's going on here. And it says here, when he heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. This is the response of Herod. You know, we can make an entire sermon just out of Herod and we can make an entire series out of his messed up family. He is messed up. Herod the Great was an amazing man. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you will see his marvelous feats. He built, uh, all, he built a massive theater. He built a, uh, he built a uh, gym, uh, not a gym. What am I trying to say? A, uh, a what? A hippodrome. That's not what I was trying to say. He, uh, <laughs> he built, uh, I don't even know what that is. He built a coliseum in uh, Caesarea. Is that a hippodrome? Okay, so um, he built a coliseum in Caesarea. He built, a theater, he built theaters. He built palaces. Uh, if you ever go to Jerusalem, one of the palaces you'll see is Masada. And, and it is a marvel to behold. You can still see the old aqueducts that he built. He was an amazing man. And he was also suspicious, paranoid, and always fearful of losing his power. He had three of his sons executed along with his wife. He was brutal and merciless. And he lived a life of total debauchery. He did not deny himself any pleasure. Whatever he wanted, he took. He, he lived his life completely lawlessly. No regard for God. No regard for his law or even morality in general. All he was concerned about was his own power and his own pleasure. That's all he cared about. He was irreligious. He was lawless. And how do they respond? Look what it says. Herod was troubled. Herod was troubled. In other words, that word could be translated intimidated. He was intimidated. He was fearful. And notice, not just him, all Jerusalem with him. They weren't nervous about the Magi. They were nervous about what Herod was gonna do to them in response to the Magi. Have you ever noticed how the irreligious are so intimidated by Jesus? You ever notice that? You ever notice how fearful they are? When a debauched atheist is troubled, he makes sure that everyone is troubled around him. Beloved, if you lived in Jerusalem, you knew that if Herod ain't happy, then ain't nobody happy, right? Maybe some of you live in a house like that. <laughs> And beloved, have you ever noticed that in a room, if an atheist ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? You ever notice that? Why is that? You can put up a beautiful marble display of the Ten Commandments in front of the Arkansas State Capitol, and what will they do? They will drive in their car, and they will run it over and destroy it. 
They would go to courts and try to get out of every single mention of God out of our society. I think today is, talk to my lawyer, I think that's the adult version of I'm telling my mommy. And so it is, what will they do? If, if atheists are troubled, everyone's troubled. They wanna remove every aspect of God from society. You can get 100 people in the room and only two of them will be atheists and yet they will be the loudest ones in the room. Have you ever noticed that? Why is that? I think Romans 1.18 gives us a good reason. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And watch this, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Beloved, the only way you can become an atheist is to actively suppress the truth of God within you. And that is the amount of energy it takes to do that. They think that if they will remove every mention of God out of society, then this nagging feeling of God and his displeasure will go away. By the way, it won't. Going after the churches. You know, we saw a lot of true colors during COVID, didn't we? We sure saw a lot of true colors. And one of them was how they went after the churches. That's amazing. In, in Las Vegas, you can, you can be a church that can sit 7,000 people, and yet you're only allowed to have 15 to 20 people at a time come to church. And yet the casinos can operate at three-fourths capacity. Tell me how that makes sense. You can go to exotic dance clubs because that is protected by the Constitution, but you can't go to church, not even outdoors. That's what they said in California. <coughs> or excuse me, that's what they said in Washington, D.C. And we know what happened in California, all the various fines and stuff. It's ridiculous. And by the way, now they're making laws that's going to outlaw, essentially, preaching and counseling the truth about homosexuality. And now, by the way, you know, it started in Canada, but now I've got several of my biblical counseling colleagues that are sending out information coming out of West Lafayette, Indiana, coming out of Virginia, that is some of these same kinds of ordinances are coming up and they're targeting churches. Did you notice how even here in Arkansas, the middle of the Bible Belt, did you notice how the journalists were always targeting churches? It's safe to go everywhere else. That's safe. Go to restaurants, go to work, whatever. Don't come to church. That's not safe. Did you notice that? Did you notice how they were targeting us? One of our members, uh, I'm getting on soapbox here. One of our, one of our members came down with COVID, I think I told you this, and, they, and the contact tracers called them, and uh, okay, yeah, I went to this restaurant, okay, no problem, yeah, I went to work, no problem, went to this, yeah, okay, I went to this, okay. Oh yeah, and I was at church two weeks ago. It became an interrogation over the phone. Straight up interrogation. The entire mood of the phone call changed. And then that interrogator called me, wanting to know, what are you doing? It's insane. If an atheist ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And if an atheist is troubled, 
Then the irreligious are troubled. They're gonna make sure that everyone is troubled with them. And that is what Herod is. He is the irreligious expronts. Aggressive intolerance. Aggressive intolerance. So that's the irreligious response, and I spend a little more time on that. So what about the self-righteous response? That's the second way. The self-righteous response. The other group that we see here in verse four, and assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. Herod calls all the priests and scribes. Who are these people? They're the religious leaders of the people. The ones, by the way, these are the ones who should have been seeking Jesus. These are the ones who were supposed to be looking for him Herod summons them and asks them where the Christ is to be born. Isn't amazing about this story? They give them the right answer. You would think that maybe they would say, uh, he, yeah, he's gonna be born in LA, you know? He's, yeah, yeah, that's where he's gonna be born. They give them the right answer. He's gonna be born in Judea. He's gonna be born in a little town called Bethlehem. Why would they do that? If the Messiah that they are supposedly waiting on, if there's a possibility that he might be born, why would they do this? Because in Herod, in the irreligious, we see aggressive intolerance. In the self-righteous, we see an apathetic indifference. We see an apathetic indifference. You see, here's the thing. If I'm self-righteous, I don't need a savior. What do, what do I need salvation for? I've got the law. I'm, I, I've got everything I need. Sola, sola gratia, sola scriptura, sola deo uh, gloria. I don't need all that. I've got sola bootstrapsia. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Tell me I need a savior. How dare you? They're the priests and scribes of the people. They don't need a savior. They just want everyone else to follow them. That's what they want. You know, beloved, the most difficult people to reach for Christ in the world are religious people. Most difficult ones. They are self-confident. They are self-assured. They are self-sufficient. And this is the response of the self-righteous, apathetic indifference. They're like Laodicea, Revelation chapter three, verse 17. Jesus tells the Laodicean church, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their self-righteousness leads them to neither be hot nor cold, but lukewarm, apathetic, unmotivated, uninspired, and indifferent. Why do we ignore Christ? Because of our depraved intuition. How will that show up? Two ways. In our irreligion or in our self-righteousness. I've told you this before. Tertullian, the great church father. He said that just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so there are two thieves that will rob you of Jesus Christ. They are religion and irreligion. They are license and legalism. They are self-indulgence and self-righteousness. Both of them are thieves and both of them will rob you of Jesus Christ. 
And that's exactly what Herod and the priest attempt to do. They tried to rob the world of Jesus. Herod goes to them and he asks them, he goes to the wise men. He says, I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to see where he is and I want you to come back to report to me. Herod is instigating a plot that he is gonna put Jesus to death. He's gonna rob the world of Jesus. Him and the priest are working together. You say, the priest, I don't see him there. What did the priest think that Herod was gonna do with this information? What, do they, what did they possibly think? This is a man who killed three of his own sons because he thought they wanted his throne. This is a man who killed his own wife because he thought she wanted his throne. What in the world did the priest think was gonna happen? They did not care. And these, these, these reactions... That's exactly what they're trying to do is that they want to kill Jesus so that they can remain in their power and in their pleasures. Why do we pull away from Christ? Why is it that when burdens come, we use them as reasons to pull away from Christ instead of drawing near? Beloved, there can really only be two responses. It's either because you don't want him or you don't feel like you don't need him. Repent, turn from your sin. Stop giving in to your flesh. Come to Christ as the Magi do. Come to Christ and see what he will do, that he will forgive sins. It's interesting, in all of this story, you have Herod who is irreligious and yet only five or six miles away from Christ. You have the priest and the scribes who are religious and they are only five or six miles away from Christ. All they had to do was walk down the road. That's all they had to do. And yet you have the Magi, the most unlikely of all people to respond to Christ. And yet possibly up to two years, they have been traveling to find him. Why do they do that? Because when you're drawn by grace, that's what you'll do. When you're drawn by grace, that's what you do. So what do they find? They find that we approach Christ through a divine intervention. They approach Christ through a divine intervention. Second part of verse nine, it says, and behold, and, and notice Matthew is drawing your attention here. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. That leads me to believe that this is not a natural star. Or if it was to begin with, it's certainly not now. <clears throat> the star that they saw at the beginning, the star that they wondered about, the star that led them to the questions, they now understand that that very star is the very thing that is leading them to the very house where they will find the very son of God. And they will respond to him. The wise men are sent on their way and they're being led by God to the very place where Christ is. By the way, what's the significance of this? Look in your Bibles very quickly to Isaiah 60. I know we're out of time. But I want you to see this in the context of the entire scriptures. Isaiah chapter 60, and I, I didn't get any verses in the script uh, on the board this week. I apologize for that. 
But I want you to see in, in Isaiah chapter 60, verses one through three, just very quickly. The future of Israel, he's prophesying here. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of Yahweh has risen around you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But watch this. But Yahweh will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And verse three, and the nations will come to your light. Stop right there. What kind of light are we talking about there? The nations will come to your light. What are we talking about there? We'll read the rest of the verse. To the bright, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What's the symbol there? He's talking about a star. He's talking about a morning star, a bright star in the sky. That the kings will come to this bright star and they will come, all the people from over all the earth, and they will come to Israel. And look down in, in verse six. They will bring all their wealth, and by the way, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it's estimated uh, in today's value, it would be approximately $30,000, the gifts they give to Christ. In verse six, it says, a multitude of camels shall cover you and young camels of Midian and Ephah and those from Shabbat will come and they shall bring what? Gold and frankincense. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? What's happening here? What's happening is that we are seeing the fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom of God in the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. It's interesting. They offer him gold and frankincense. And by the way, the, the wise men offer him myrrh. You don't see that in Isaiah, do you? Why is that? Why is that? Do you know what myrrh was used for? It was used for the preparation of the dead. You can see that in two places where where um, Nathaniel and Joseph of Arimathea are coming and they have a bottle of myrrh to prepare Jesus for his burial. You see that in the ladies who are going to the tomb in the morning. They're bringing myrrh with them to prepare for the burial. You see here in Isaiah 60, myrrh is not mentioned. Is it really though? Think about it. Look at verse six. They shall bring gold and frankincense and what else shall they bring? They shall bring good news, the praises of Yahweh. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, you know that word good news, you know what it is? Euangelizo, the gospel. It's the word we get evangelism from. You see, when the wise men come and they bring this spice, gold and frankincense, and yes, they bring myrrh, a spice that is specifically used for the preparation of dead bodies, what are they doing? They are proclaiming, uh, probably unbeknownst to themselves, they, this is beyond them, they don't really understand it, they're just bringing an expensive spice, that's all they're doing, and yet God in his infinite foreknowledge, in his sovereign wisdom, and in his sovereign guidance, they're bringing this extra extra spice myrrh. Why? Because it points to the very coming of the death of Jesus Christ. The very means by which the king will set up his kingdom. The very means by which the kingdom will come and be established by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ.
This is a divine preview of the end when all the nations will come to Christ just as these three, or however many they are, these magi do. Jesus Christ is the one who died for us. Jesus Christ is the one who raised for us. And beloved, if you would come to Christ, you must come to Christ through the cross. You can't come to a cute baby in a manger. You must come to a risen Savior. He is the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you so that your sins can be forgiven so that you can be justified in God's sight. And he raised from the dead on the third day so that you can have new life in him. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, I pray that even now you would come and you would behold the king. You would become and you would know Christ. You are the Magi. You are the Gentiles. You are the ones who have gone off. You want to be king. Maybe you're irreligious. Maybe you are religious. But for whatever reason, you have ignored Christ. I want to offer you this morning, beloved, don't wait. Your religion is not going to get you anywhere. And your pleasure is going to lead to hell. Your religion is gonna lead to hell unless it is grounded upon the truth of Jesus Christ and a relationship, a living relationship with him. Don't lose Christ to lawlessness. Don't lose Christ to legalism. Come to Christ and find forgiveness of your sins and new life in him. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, I would love to talk to you and explain to you how you can know him. So I wanna ask everyone to, let's just spend some time in prayer. And if you're here this morning and you don't know him, may you come to him this morning. Let's all stand and bow our heads. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you for the invitation of all the nations to come to Jesus Christ. Lord, we are, we are all the nations. There's not one of us in this room who who came to you through the old covenant. We all come through the new. And Father, we understand that the old covenant is done away. The new covenant has come in Jesus Christ and a new kingdom has been established. And Lord, we want everyone within the sound of our voice, either through here or online, podcast, whatever it may be. Lord, we want all people to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, we ask you to save and save some more. May there be a wonderful response to your word and to the gospel. And if there's one here this morning who does not know you, I pray they would give up their kingship. I pray they would give up their small little kingdoms that they have built to themselves and that they would surrender all to you, our Lord, our Christ. If you're here this morning, I'm just gonna ask you to keep your head bowed for a moment. Just reflect on the things you've heard and perhaps how they apply to your life this morning as our musicians play. And if you have any need, I I invite you to come.
Maybe you just want to kneel where you are and pray. Maybe you just want to remind yourself once again that Jesus Christ is our King. Maybe you've been wandering away from Him. Maybe you've been building up little castles made of sand in your own heart. You've taken Christ off of the throne of your heart. Would you put Him back? Would you surrender to Him? Would you repent of your sins and turn to Him?